We're going to continue our series on uh, through First Peter, a people prepared, a very timely series uh, as we as we journey through this season together. And before we dive into God's word, I want you to, to, to think back with me of what it would be like to, to be part of the first century church. And um, a gentleman by the name of Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist wrote a book, and it's called The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in Just a Few Centuries, which is truly remarkable. And he lays out why that is so just, it just baffling. How could this movement have taken root and then spread like it did when you consider that the church just exploded in the midst of intense, intense persecution? There was no religious freedom. There was no bill of rights. There were no protections. There were dictators, emperors, by the likes of Nero. Peter's readers are living in that context. They were the persecuted Christians. They were in danger. And they recognized that here on earth, this was not their home. They were strangers and aliens just passing through. And here's, here's a, a few things that, that Rodney kind of noted and pointed out that just made such an impact. One of them being the Christians and their response uh, to, to um, natural disasters like earthquakes, to, to famine, to, to uh, pandemics and disease and other crises that, that, that emerged. The, the Christian response was one of love and compassion. Instead of fleeing from the brokenness, from the sickness that, that, that ravaged communities and cities, they flocked to the cities to, to care for the broken, to care for the sick. It was absolutely remarkable, and it, it just verified the gospel message. Another standout feature was their high view of human life. Their high view of human life. In fact, they rescued countless babies from infanticide, abortion. The first Christian orphanages really were founded out of this first century movement to protect the young, the babies. Another marker is there, there was their high view of, of women, which was very countercultural as well. Because women had no rights. Some were even considered to be property. But then the Bible talks about love as equal partners in the grace of God, as co-heirs with Christ, as being created in the image of God. This was unheard of. This was countercultural, to say the least. And this, this countercultural movement of, of sacrifice, of love, of compassion, of equality between men and women, that changed the world. So this weekend, as we look at 1 Peter 3, we find more countercultural teaching on marriage. And it's this countercultural teaching 
that has the power to change the world, to change your world, to change your relational, the, the eight to 15 people that God has put in your, wor- in your world uniquely, divinely, where you can be a gospel influence, a Jesus influence through your marriage. And we've kind of captured that in our now what for, for this weekend. It's in your notes, it says this. God wants to use your marriage to be a gospel influence in your relational world. God truly wants to use your marriage to be a gospel influence in your relational world. Before we dive into chapter three, this now what is really anchored in chapter two. So I want to kind of remind ourselves and look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 and kind of refresh ourselves and where, where this all comes from. It says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, these words begin a, a section, it marks a transition in the book of 1 Peter. He has spent the first little bit of his writing teaching theology. And now he's going to move to some very practical implications of that theology. So what, what he's doing now, he's putting together a household code. The Roman world, um, they had what, what we call household codes, which gave principles of how the society ought to function, how government is supposed to function, how households are supposed to function, how how just various societal structures are to be functioned and, and, and orderliness was, was just very much a high value in that. So now Peter takes this concept of a household code and brings Jesus into it. He doesn't necessarily turn it all upside down and says forget about this, but he brings this Jesus influence into this societal ordering. So he starts off with that we are to submit to the government authorities, and we looked at that two weeks ago. Then he moves on to that slaves are to to submit to their masters, and and even maybe by extension in modern day, we we can apply this to to our employment, employee uh, context. And then this this chapter three brings us into the home. And he talks about submission of wives to the loving leadership of their husbands. So we're going to read chapter three, or or, uh, in chapter three together. We're not going to read the whole chapter, the first seven verses. And these principles are absolutely countercultural. For some, all kinds of maybe even red signals are going to start going off. And and I want you to just, I want to caution you to just stick with the text. Let's make sure we understand God's word correctly before we jump to conclusions. So let's start reading in chapter three. It'll be on the screen here. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they, be, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, 
It should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth to God in, in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, there you have it, folks. This passage should come with a warning. Like, landmines ahead, or like, watch out for the biblical grenades, because you may lose an arm. Um, there's, there, there's some pretty interesting things here, I would say. And honestly, some of this stuff just needs some contextual, some cultural explanation, and all will be well. Other aspects of the text are just a challenge. They absolutely are a challenge to live out in obedience to, to God's design and, and, and directives. And, and I, I came across this quote, and I think it's just very fitting when we come to, to a challenging text like this. It's by G.K. Chesterton, um, author, philosopher. Um, he says this, it's on the screen. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It has not been found wanting. God's design has never found to be at fault. But it absolutely has been difficult. And for a lot of us, untried. Will we trust God's word? Our core value puts it this way, that the Bible is God's story given to transform you and to be, an be the authority in your life. That's where we stand this morning. We stand under the text of scripture. We stand under God's word. So let's, let's unpack this together. And if you're noticing like, man, like the wives, they got six verses and the husbands only got one. That's not fair. Let me just say husbands, strap in because we're gonna get it. Trust me. So let's take a closer look. So uh, verse one, it says, wives in the same way. This is connecting to where Peter started this household code. In, verse, uh, in chapter two, verse 13, he says, you know, submit for the Lord's sake to these human authorities. Then he calls out the, the slaves in verse 18, that out of reverent fear of God, slaves are commanded to submit. Later on, chapter three, verse seven, husbands in the same way, meaning out of reverent fear of God, this is how you ought to live. Wives, out of reverent fear of God, this is how you ought to live. And, and, and Paul perhaps puts it best when he describes our Christian life as, as, as spiritual acts of worship. So wives, Verse one, out of reverence for God, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they, be, be, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So who's the audience here? Who is he talking to? Well, it's, it's pretty clear 
that among the audience of First Peter, there are, there are wives whose husbands do not believe. And as you might imagine, that is a huge challenge, not just for first century Christians, but for Christians throughout the ages. Uh, but some of the implications for the first century Christians of a, of a, a wife with an unbelieving husband, uh, that was a shame, that was embarrassing to the husband. That, that could have very well excluded him from holding positions of leadership in society. After all, if you can't control your wife, why, why should we put you in charge of anything around here? So to Peter, to, to almost counter that critique, Peter, for him, submission is a huge opportunity to win over her husband. I was... Um, Sherry Skubik, our women's ministry director, she hosted our services last week and um, she mentioned how her husband John came to faith 20 years ago. But before that, she was a wife with an unbelieving husband. So I called her up this week, I'm like, Sherry, man, was that, these words of 1 Peter 3, were, were, were those significant verses for you? And she, I mean, not, not a, she didn't skip a beat and say, absolutely. These words meant so much to me while, while John did not believe. And, 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 and praise God, he, he, he worked in John's heart and he became a believer. And, and, and all that to say is, I know there are some of you who are in this situation. You are living with an unbelieving spouse and an unbelieving husband. And man, if Sherry can encourage you in any way, if, you're, if you are a wife and your husband does not believe, she would love to be an encouragement to you. And you can feel free to contact her through our website. And, and um, she wanted to make herself available to be an encouragement. Now, when we talk about passages like this, we always have to make sure that we, we're very careful that submission, we never... We never submit to abuse. Things that are immoral, things that are against God's directives. We obey God first and foremost. When it comes to abuse, even in the Roman world, we find uh, laws and, and prohibitions against spousal abuse. And, and not that it, um, obviously a huge problem in that day as it is even in our day too. But if, if that is your situation, you do not, you do not submit to abuse ever. And, and if that is your situation, we want to help and, and con don't hesitate to contact us. It's also important to note in this text that um, uh, wives with unbelieving husbands is not the exclusive husband, uh, audience. It's part of it, but it says, you know, if any of them do not believe the word which assumes that some of them do not believe the word, but others do. So really, all marriages are in view here. Um, all marriages, all spouses. So with that said, here's our first point um, that related to, to our, our, our wives. And, and wives are called to voluntary and winsome submission to their husbands. And we'll talk a little about what that looks like. Wives are called to voluntary, winsome submission to their husbands. You see, God wants to use your marriage. He wants to use your marriage as a gospel influence. And so, um, Peter, 
throws out two accompanying markers. And we see it when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. You know, Peter adds. So the first marker is, is her devotion to God in her reverence. Her devotion to God is, is, is something that, that God might use to draw her husband to himself. And the second marker is her Christ-like character in her purity. And then he kind of expounds on that in verses three and four. And uh, it says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, uh, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Peter's got, he's got nothing about, he's got nothing against wearing clothes or jewelry or elaborate hairstyles. That's not the point. His focus is on, we cannot allow ourselves to be defined by what we wear, by our hairstyles. And, and this is specifically um, targeting, instructing the women to not find your sense of beauty in the externals. But what does he say? It should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Literally, he talks about um, the inner self is the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart should reflect a gentle and quiet spirit. And you say, what's that all about? I'm an extrovert. No one's ever called me quiet or gentle. And you know what? That's okay. That is completely within God's design. We're not talking about personalities here. We're talking about your heart, your inner self, the hidden person of the heart, the attitude of the heart that is free from bitterness or a resentment from anger, but it's filled with kindness instead of harshness. This is not a personality test, but this is an evaluation of the heart. And I love this, this gentle and quiet spirit, that's Jesus. That's the Jesus we see in Matthew 11, who's gentle. That's the, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in you. The fruit of the Spirit should be in us, whether we are male or female husbands and wives, that we be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. These are all the markers of, of, of the character of God, this Christ-like character that, that, that should be formed in all of us. And then Peter is drawing attention to that for, for, for these wives that he's talking to and, and, and for the wives that he's speaking to today. This is how a marginal Jesus movement changed the world through a bunch of amazing wives. This is how Jesus wants to work in your relational world. He wants to use you and your marriage. He doesn't want to use your perfect marriage because there's none of those. He wants to use your grace-filled marriage to change your relational world. Husbands, you ready? Let's do it. Verse seven, I put it on the screen because it's been a while since we were in verse seven. So here, just to refresh. Husbands, in the same way, 
you know, out of reverence, out of reverence for God, out of your devotion for God, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You see, Peter is an equal opportunity exhorter and we can be thankful for that because here's, here's what he says to husband. Um, husbands, are called, actually go ahead and put up the slide. There we go. Husbands are called to treasure and lead their wives according to an intimate knowledge of her needs, wants, hopes, and literally just all that she is. As husbands, we're called to treasure, and we'll see that very clearly in the text, and to lead our wives according to just intimate knowledge of her needs, wants, hopes, and just basically all all that she is. It starts off, be considerate as you live with your wives. That's actually not not even nearly close, strong enough or clear enough of a translation. Uh, It's really, it's, it's to live with your life according to this knowledge, this deep personal knowledge that, 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 This is like a command to be a student, get a PhD in your wife. Know her deeply. Know her needs, her goals, her frustrations. Know her insecurities and know how to build her up in those. Know her fears and give her courage. Part of this knowledge, the, the, the words that, that, that is being used here, absolutely has, has uh, physical, sexual uh, overtones. And, 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 and Peter is calling us to love our wives, not to pagan lust. This is just this all-encompassing, deep knowledge of, of this treasure. And that's where he goes to next. And treat them with respect um, as the weaker partner and as heirs with joy of the gracious gift of life. He says, treat them with respect. This respect, it's actually honor. Um, Honor and and, and even uh, preciousness. Preciousness. uh, Peter uses the same word a couple chapters ago um, to refer to Jesus, the preciousness, this cornerstone that is precious. You have a treasure Your wife is your treasure. She is precious to God and to you. Love her well. Prefer her. Honor her. Put your your interest secondary. Prefer her. Put her ahead of yourself. Lay down your life for her, which is in Ephesians 5 kind of principle, and we'll remind ourselves of that in just a little bit. Then he calls um, as the weaker partner. What is that all about, right? He's he's saying to never use, the husband, never use his physical strength or social position to overpower her and demean her in any way, shape, or form. The fact is that, yes, husbands are, are typically stronger than their wives. Perhaps not all the time. That's not the point. But socially, too, in this context, oh, my wives were extremely vulnerable um, in, in, in society here in the first century. He says, you, you better treat her as precious. She is, she is precious to God. She's precious to honor her, prefer her, protect her, guard her. 
And then he says, because she is an equal heir of the gracious gift of life. This passage is absolutely teaching about this godly submission in the midst of equality. Equality of personhood. Male, female, created in the image of God together. Women are never less than, but absolutely equal. Equality with differing roles, which is exemplified in, in, in even the Trinity. God, uh, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Absolutely, 100% equal. The Father is God. Jesus is God. The Spirit is God. Yet we find in the function of the Trinity, in their roles, the Son submits to the Father. He is never less than. He is fully God. But in his function, in roles, we even have this submission as a beautiful picture. Don't ever feel less than in that submission, because that's not of God. Here's a warning. Husbands, if we don't do this, if we don't practice this honoring, treasuring, leading, this will absolutely impact your spiritual vitality. It says, your prayers will be hindered. There's spiritual implications here to how we lead and love and treasure our wives. Husbands, just look at your wife. She is your treasure to protect, to honor, to literally give yourself to her. This is sacrificial leadership and this is an extremely high bar. You're called to lay down your, your, your pride. I have to lay down my pride, and that's not always easy. I have to lay down my, my, any, any, any sense of entitlement that I might have because my wife is first. To lay down my preferences so I can show her preference. This kind of leadership, <coughs> this kind of leadership is winsome to a watching world. This kind of leadership is winsome to a wife. This kind of leadership builds trust and trust is exactly what is needed and what matters when it comes to submission. God wants to use you as a husband to be a gospel influence in your relational world. Now, I want to get really specific because I think that's helpful when we get very practical, just kind of real life examples. Uh, but before we do that, I want to make sure, like, as we look at, at this first Peter passage, I think it's also really helpful, like, how does this line up with the rest of Scripture? So just really quickly, I want to just remind ourselves of Ephesians 5, which is just a key passage on, on, on marriage. And we're just going to look at uh, two verses together. Ephesians 5, verse 22, wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So this is, again, it's incredibly consistent. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow. 
It sounds like Paul, who is the author of Ephesians, and Peter are saying the same thing. So what might this look like? I think it looks like this. So you and your, 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 um, your spouse, you're deciding what's for dinner. What, what do you, you're going to go out on a date. Your wife wants to, go, wants to have Italian, and you want to have steak, because steak is awesome. Um, what do you do? Who wins? That's terrible language to use, by the way. Um, nobody wins. But what do you do? Italian or steak? Guys, you're going to have Italian every time. You're going to put her preference ahead of yours. And you say, honey, let's get some Italian. Or maybe it's related to uh, going on vacation. She wants to go on a cruise. You want to go camping. What do you do? Who wins? You're going to go on a cruise. Because you're going to say, you know what? I want to put my wife and her desires, her interests ahead of my own. To be honest, I want to go camping. Said no one ever. Um, Anyway, uh, you're like, I want to go camping, husband, you know? But... I know that she, she wants to go on this cruise and I want to serve her. I want to make sure that, 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 that my interests are second to hers. But check this out. You know what you could do as a wife? You say, no, honey, guess what? Let's go camping. Thank you so much for being willing to go on that cruise. But we're going camping. And you see what happened there? We see teamwork. We see oneness that's being, being shaped and, and, and enriched. Oneness is the picture of Genesis 2, when God said the two will become one flesh. One flesh it happens every day as a married couple. In these moments when we say, no, you first. You first. Oneness is being built. Trust is being formed. So now your wife needs a new car. She wants a minivan. You want an SUV. What do you do? Man, you say, gosh, I I really don't want that minivan. But honey, if if that really would would serve your needs better, we're going to get that minivan. But the scenario might also be different. What if she wants um, like like a little coupe? Little two door, two door, little coupe, and you've got three kids, and you're like, no, but, but like, I want the minivan. What do you do? Do you say, oh, you know, yeah, let's just get the coupe. That sounds like a great idea for our family of five. This is how this might look like. No, it's like, honey, like, I, I totally respect that, that, that you want that coupe, two doors for our family. But I think you'll be so frustrated. It's just not going to work well for a family. And here's what's, I'm going to ask you to trust me. And I think we should get the minivan. As a husband, not because, oh man, we need to get that minivan. It's all about you. No, it's actually for her, with her interests in mind. With your family in mind. You're, you're, You're deciding, you know, honestly, like, I I, I want to put your interests before my own, absolutely. But this is not about my interests. This is what I believe is best for my wife and for my family. So I'm going to ask my wife, trust me on this. I think we really should get that minivan. Well, what about when it comes to 
Is it time to move and, and, and buy a, a different house? What about, is it to, do we, would we like to adopt or just add another baby to our collection of children? What should we do? Well, these are life-changing scenarios. These have huge impact on, on your family for, for like, you know, the rest of your life potentially, right? So what do you do? A lot of times we, we don't have to make a decision right away if we're not on the same page. We can be patient. We're going we're gonna to introspect and we're going to evaluate our hearts and make sure that we are um, approaching this in a spirit of humility. That we truly are putting our interests uh, secondary. And in Philippians 2 calls all of us to do that. We're going to maybe consult some outside wisdom and, and, and just some trusted Jesus-following friends that maybe are older, wiser, say, what do you guys think? Can you help us? We're going to pray about this. We're going to pray and just ask God, because in, in James chapter one, it says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of me. Oh, there's so many times. Maybe I'm just really dumb. <laughs> no, when I'm like, dude, I don't know what to do. And I just remind myself of James chapter one. I'm like, oh man, God. And I even, I even just say, God, you say in your word, if, if you need wisdom, ask of me. So that's exactly what I tell you. I need some wisdom here. If you're looking at some of these decisions and you're like, we just don't know what to do. We're not on the same page. Ask for wisdom. And as, and I truly believe that, that as you have served each other in the little things, in the Italian versus steak, in the cruise vacations versus camping, and learning to, to serve one another, to lay a husband, to lay your life down for her, I think you're going you're gonna to figure this out whether to move or not. You're going to figure this out with God's wisdom on, on what your family looks like in the future. I believe that is a winsome marriage to a watching world. And that's exactly what is captured in our now what? God wants to use your marriage to be a gospel influence in your relational world. I 100% believe this. This is the truth of scripture starting in chapter two, that they may see your good deeds. They may see your marriage out of reverence for God, how you serve each other, how you love each other. And then that he wants to use that marriage to be a gospel influence in your relational world. I want to trust God that he would do that. Yes, it might be very difficult to put this into practice, but I can guarantee you, you will not find these principles left wanting, as G.K. Chesterton quoted earlier. So that's where we end today. I want to pray, because these are, these, are, these are hard truths, but they're also truths that will give your marriage life and influence, and it's, and it's amazing. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for speaking to us through your word. We thank you for hard truths. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to obey, the courage to believe, the courage to, to put this into practice. Father, I pray for, uh, for the husbands. I pray for myself. Father, let us 
lead our wives, treasure our wives, give ourselves to our wives in submission to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for, for all the wives out there, Lord, and, and I just pray just for, for you to continue to, to cultivate this, this character and just reverence and devotion to you and trust, Lord, that, that they would trust you in their submission to their husband's leadership, even imperfect leadership, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for our marriages Lord, there are no perfect marriages, and, and so I just pray your grace on the marriages of Trinity Church and beyond. Would you bring continued transformation to husbands and wives individually, but and also together, Lord, just continue to, to, to cultivate this oneness, this beautiful picture according to your design. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.